0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about the art, the books, the music and much more that have defined their life and work. For the last in the current series, we've got an artist who's a bit different from those that have featured before. All three of the people we've spoken to so far, Michael Armitage, Chantal Joffe and Jenny Saville, have been painters with a capital P. Rashid Johnson does make paintings, but amid a much broader range of media. He began, in fact, as a photographer and studied photography at Columbia College in Chicago before moving to the Art Institute of Chicago later to do his Masters. And it was with photography that he made his name as a very young artist, just 24, when he was in a show called Freestyle at the Studio Museum in Harlem. The body of work he showed in that exhibition was called Seeing in the Dark and it was a series of portraits of African-American homeless people. They're extremely powerful and affecting and strikingly they evoke early photography using techniques that conjure those great photographic portraits of the 19th century. But quite quickly Rashid moved into new territories and his work up to now has included everything from installation to sculpture and indeed painting. And all of the work is characterised by on the one hand a deeply subjective response to the world, this is very much Rashid's response, very much his vision, but also they're evocative of the cultural and social experiences of the wider African American community. And that's writ large in the materials that Rashid uses. So for instance, the signature black splashes that you see across his works and that look like paint are actually made from black soap and wax. And black soap, just like shea butter, another material that Rashid uses, is intimately connected with the black body. As Rashid recalled in an interview with the critic Paul Laster, they were products which were sold where he grew up on the south side of Chicago and were, and I quote, a way to culturise oneself in Africanness as you were exploring or looking for an identity. And there's also an irreverence in the way that Rashid uses the materials, so he will pour the black soap and wax from a kettle or from a saucepan for instance. He also uses spray painting, quick graffiti-like marks and oil stick in which he draws very expressively onto the surfaces which themselves are very varied. There's a whole series of works which use ceramic tiles as the surface for instance. Among the most powerful bodies of work that Rashid has created in recent years is a series called Anxious Men which he began in 2015 and he actually said began as a kind of self-portrait. They evolved into the anxious audiences, groups of these sort of tormented and anguished figures, then into the broken men in which these figures appeared on fragmented and fractured surfaces of ceramic and mirrored tiles, and now into the anxious red paintings, which feature the same figure, but depicted in this extreme and violent red. So even within the territory of painting, Rashid is constantly pushing his materials in new directions. So before we began talking about his cultural influences, I began by asking Rashid if, despite his early success as a photographer, it had always been his intention to work in multiple media.
1: I think I knew quite early that I was gonna be interested in, in, in working in, in many mediums. I had studied photography because it was a really interesting space at an interesting time. In the 90s when I'm in school, you have a lot of people leaning towards new media, photography being kind of in that category, in that space, so people were using a lot of video, film, photography, performance becomes a bigger and, and more important vehicle at that time or around that time. I felt like that's where the interesting and smart and and thoughtful and avant-garde folks were. So I dove into that space because that seemed like the fresh, the the, 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 the space with the most territory. Prior to that, I had been interested in Performing arts. I'd been interested in writing. I had a, a little bit of history with with film. I, of course, like you know, like most young artists had had used paint and, and, and thought about sculpture. I always knew that I'd probably go back to those, but I wanted to peel the cap off of this kind of new medium thing. And photography was that vehicle. And it seemed like the, the space where a lot of the, the interesting kids were.
0: What was interesting to me about that early body of work was that it, it immediately engaged with the history of the medium in the sense that you were using techniques which related to that history and And it strikes me that that is that's a, that's another continuum which whichever medium you're working with that you you engage with the history of that medium and maybe that's an inevitable thing, but it seems to me quite a conscious thing in the way that you work with different media
1: no my My mother was a history professor,
0: so it's not odd for me that
1: that would be the place that I initially kind of interact with 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 media is to think about its history, to think about how it's kind of affected the discourse and and to dig into my relationship to to different mediums uh, from my position, right? Uh, As as a male, as a black male, thinking about my agency to perform with certain kinds of tools, in particular in photography, Uh, when I started to dig into its history and thinking about how it was employed in the 19th century, thinking about like what or how it would be performed by black bodies in that, in that time and, and what the suggestions and the opportunities are there. And in that sense, there's this kind of um, opportunity to not rewrite history, but reinvestigate the relationship that one would have to these kinds of histories and who would have the opportunities to, to bring these materials and these concepts and concerns to, to, to life and, and, and uh, to fruition. So I think I, I face other mediums with similar ambition, thinking about my relationship to sculpture, or in particular some sculpting practices. Uh, minimalism is something that I, I often think about. How does my experience inform how we examine or, or explore or imagine uh, minimalist narratives? I do similar things when it comes to, you know, the most kind of canonically familiar materials, which are, of course, like linen or canvas and oil, which is part of of, of bodies of work that I've been working on more recently, um, in particular during the COVID crisis and and more recently uh, inside the the reckoning that we're all kind of uh, witnessing via uh, race relations and in particular the relationship between communities of colour and the police.
0: I'm intrigued by the way that you use those materials not only the materials themselves and you know in how they embody the black body in terms of the wax and in terms of the shea butter and in terms of the black soap but also the way that you use the way that the, the, the implements you use to make the marks as well so you're pouring with kettles and saucepans and you're dragging with broom handles and things like that and there's this sort of I'm interested in the way that everything feels to me a s- sort of site of contention uh, a questioning of the, the medium and the way that it's applied always questioning
1: yeah it's it's, it's interesting I, I've had a friend who who's been following my work for many years and, and he's suggested similar things uh, in particular when I use broomsticks and other things that that really produce distance between myself and the surface that I'm marking. You know, what I kind of think of in, in, this, in this space is Bryce Martin's um, big long stick that he used for, I think, the cold mountain paintings and seeing those images and seeing his distance from, from, the, from the canvas when he's, when he's making those pictures. But again, my friend is always suggesting that I have some sort of disdain for these traditional uh, surfaces and that I like I've like kind of poking at it with a stick is my way of of suggesting that you know it's filthy you know (laughs) that I want to kind of keep my distance from it but I still want to engage that I have a willingness to participate but that I that I still have some sort of frustration with it I'm not sure that that's completely untrue in all honesty, I think that there is something about how the canon has traditionally been formed and how these, uh, how these materials, I think, have uh, oftentimes created separation between the thinkers and the practitioners, you know, and, and I find myself to be someone who has an investment in, in both um, the poetic nature of how a picture is made and how a mark is it it finds itself on the surface and then the kind of critical and theoretical and philosophical concerns that that make us um, have any investment in conjuring these kinds of symbols and signs and that dichotomy for me has always been almost a point of contention you know it's like this um, this this marriage that sometimes feels very wholesome and full and valuable and sometimes feels like it's at war with itself.
0: Uh, uh, there's a there's a really nice quote actually that you I'm going to quote yourself back at you uh, where you said it took time for me to forgive myself for thinking beauty was okay. And I think that's really that's really powerful.
1: Yeah, it's and, and it's it's really quite true from where I came, you know, from my training and from the artists and thinkers who helped form who i I am as as a thinker and as an artist, you know there was not as much investment in beauty and in in poetry for that matter, and I always had a sense that it was important to me, and I kind of kept it as a dirty little secret in a sense. <laughs> I, I've gotten to a stage in my life and in my project where I've, I've begun more so to reward myself with it and to recognize its value and recognize its importance in, in the wholeness of how an art object comes to life. That an art object is not exclusively something for me that's born to interrogate a circumstance or interrogate a medium or investigate or explore um, those spaces from a critical position, but also to to further uh, the investigation through aesthetic value systems and solutions and decision making from uh, a creative and, and, and poetic position and those those things are are really equally important to me in a way that I think they were hard to embrace. Uh, at a different stage. And I'm not suggesting that I, in some sort of orthodox way, was forced into a conceptual tradition to which I didn't belong and are want to be an active participant. I'm just recognizing that I now am living what is my truth as an artist. And I think I have been for a long time, but I, I think I'm more admitting it now than maybe I previously was capable of.
0: Great. Well, let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Now, who was the first artist whose work you loved?
1: I would, I would have to say Rakim from the rap group Eric B. and Rakim. There was something about how serious he was about his art. I'd never seen or heard a man talk about making art, but talk about it with this level of like veracity, this like seriousness, this this expectation that he and the opportunity to amplify his voice was so serious and so important to him that he was willing to break down every wall, every barrier, and every obstacle in order to make sure that he had those opportunities. There's a line in particular in a song called Microphone Fiend, which has been kind of a, a guiding light for me in my project. But he, he uh, suggests that he's at the park and they won't let him use the microphone because they say he's too small or something. And he says, he's, he says, cool, because I don't get upset. I kick a hole in the speaker, pull the plugs, then I jet. Meaning he if he wasn't going to get his opportunity to speak, to be creative, to amplify his voice, to be heard, he was going to destroy the opportunity for everybody else. And I remember thinking, wow, like, what is this commitment? Like, what and how did this guy find something that was so important to him that he was willing to, uh, at all costs, invest in it and explore it? And that, to me, you know, was is, is still a guiding light and a principle. I take this really seriously. I love it. I love it. I think it's so fascinating that we get these opportunities. So, um, Rakim from Eric being and Rakim.
0: I guess the interesting thing is, did you initially think you might emulate his path as in with music or did you already, I mean, when you were thinking these things, did you already think I'm going to be a visual artist, but I'm going to use, I'm going to use that spirit in my visual art.
1: It's fascinating. i still, am not sure that I've chosen what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I'm a visual artist. I I think it would be hard to argue with the fact that I'm a visual artist. But I still feel like I could kind of do anything in a way, and 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 that's not to suggest that I could do anything well. <laughs> you know? Sometimes I think, oh, maybe I I, I will write something of of, of value and of, of interest. Sometimes I think. And I record little songs with friends, and, and we record in the summer, and I'm in no way a talented musician. And, and I think my friends would, would, would definitely clearly say the same. But I still love singing songs. I, I just, from a very early age, the kind of post-medium space that I think is still very present in my project, was kind of set in stone. I just never thought to myself medium specificity or creative specificity was the vehicle for me. I was like, I will write a song. I will write a play. I would direct a film. I will make a painting. I will make a sculpture. You know, I would uh, uh, perform poetry. I just felt a real willingness and a real uh, uh, kind of draw into whatever needed to be done in order to amplify my voice so no i didn't think i'm going to follow his path directly as a musician even though i was interested in hip-hop and rap and 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 did some performance when i was young but i just thought i wanted to follow his passion i just wanted to have passion for something and to me it didn't matter what that was that's great
0: so let's talk about visual art now and yeah in terms of historical artists which historical artists would you say you turn to the most
1: i often turn to the painter franz klein there's something furious about his project and i think he shares with rakem a, a a real seriousness and a real kind of rigor and 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 a real almost aggression in his project that i often kind of turn to and 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 feel and understand how his passion functioned, or imagine that that's how his passion functioned. But there are you know so many other artists to whom I've, I've also turned, Dubuffet is another artist to whom I, I look. I'm really interested in, in this opportunity that we have to think about representation without fulfilling how people may expect to be represented. You know, the idea that the face can just kind of be conjured in whichever way and that we just kind of come to the solution that it's a face. And then we kind of project on that what the emotional state or the characteristics of that thing are. And so he's an artist who I, I've looked at and, and thought about quite a bit. But again, I'm, I'm a child of history, so I, I, I have a, a laundry list of artists who have really informed my project.
0: Is it too obvious that when I see a a dramatic black shape on one of your works that Klein has been in your mind Uh, and likewise with the Anxious Men series for instance that Dubuffet informed that series is that just too literal a kind of interpretation of of what you're telling me?
1: No it's not you know I I, I, uh, I don't hide my influences that well to be honest yeah, you know, and I've never tried. Um, I, I I think that my my project has its own journey, and I think when you collectively look at it, and when you look at all of the influences, and then my my approach specifically to solving some problems that they may have also confronted, I feel completely comfortable um, sharing space with some of the folks who who I consider to be. Um, really valuable and important voices in, 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 in this space. So is it is it that I'm borrowing directly? Not so much, but can you see the the, the loose lines to which uh, my work relates to some of these folks who I've suggested? Absolutely. I mean, I would also, you know, I, I kind of gave you a, a couple folks who I think were, were easier... Um, uh, to to see their relationship to my project. You know, like I would say often, Carl Andre or Sal LeWitt. Um, and, and then you can really find parallels to Sal in my project, you know, quite easily. You look at the structures and you say, okay, that's what he's talking about. So sometimes I will give kind of the answers that make this game easiest. <laughs> um, but there are other artists, including um, de Kooning and, and Charles White. And... And uh, Roy DeCarava, the photographer, uh, who I would honestly consider to be my my, my biggest hero. Um, and, and the other answer to the question to which I said, Rakim was the first artist to whom I, I really fell in love with. If we were to have a visual artist answer to that question, it would be the photographer Roy Carava, who I fell in love with his project, not from... Uh, seeing the work. It was from an NPR interview. And he was talking about photography. And I was working at the time at a one-hour photo lab. I was 18 years old. And I heard him in this National Public Radio interview. It was an exhibition of his that was at MoMA that had traveled to the Art Institute Chicago. And I was in Chicago at the time. And I was listening to this interview on NPR. And he talked about pictures and his relationship to pictures. And I said, whatever that guy does, I want to do that. And so again, you know, it's an interesting thing. I fell in love with a photographer by hearing him talk.
0: And what about artists that are still with us? Which living artists do you most admire?
1: Well, you know, a real hero of mine is David Hammons, whose wit and whose um, sophistication and whose exploration of the ready-made and of conceptual practice and of absurdity I think is, is something that I still am so fascinated by and in looking at his project there were times earlier in, in my career project where I, I, I looked at his work and thought wow I just really would like to find a way to have my voice have the kind of authentic quality that I felt David's voice had. Uh, there, there are, are other artists who I think people wouldn't necessarily imagine, or they might, you know, if I, if I was being fair, um, that that I'd look at Bruce Nauman is one, and and I always joke that if anyone tells you that they understand Bruce Nauman's project, that that you shouldn't trust them, because I think it's one of those projects that's so nimble and so complicated and and really marries that thing that i've been talking about more recently or that i even suggested earlier in the interview which is a sense of poetry and the opportunity and sophistication that poetry provides and then a sense of kind of critical and conceptual investigation and exploration and creating you know again that that relationship that dichotomy and, and giving them a place to thrive. I think that, that Bruce Nauman does that in, in ways that are just, you know, mind-blowing to me
0: and fascinating and fun, you know, and, and fun. Just because you love other artists and you draw on other artists, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have them around you. But do you have reproductions of these artists' work sort of pinned to your studio walls and around you in books?
1: I, I do have them around me in books, uh, I'm I'm a junkie for 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 artist books. I don't have the best taste. I don't always go for the first edition and the most expensive copy, but I do surround myself with these things, and I'm often digging through artist books and looking at things. But really, it, it, it when I it's when I when I walk into a, a museum, the reason that I still have such an investment and. In, these institutions, these cultural institutions, is that something really beautiful happens to me when I walk into a museum. I feel like my brain turns on and I feel like a sponge. I feel like I'm just really open to taking it in. I, I often tell a story about being at the Art Institute of Chicago and coming across a work of of the artist Richard Tuttle, which was a piece of cloth that was just pinned to the wall in a few in a few different spots. And I looked at it, and I was young. I was maybe nineteen at the time, and I thought to myself, "Oh my God, I did not know this was an option. I did not know this is an option." And I think that there, there are two ways to approach it. I think some people would come to work like that at a young age, and they would say, "Oh, this is not good. You know, this this is simple. I I I am a craftsman. I'm a skilled man or a woman, a skilled uh, practitioner. I." I, I have higher expectations. I came to it and was like, this is genius. And I love it. And I loved the questions that it asked. And, and that's how I continue to approach my, uh, my relationship to institutions today.
0: This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. Cork Street lies at the centre of the highest concentration of galleries in London and remains the spiritual and cultural home of the global art world, where the careers of some of the greatest artists of our time were launched. Cork Street Galleries is an initiative by the Pollen Estate. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com. So I'm going to ask you a really difficult question now, which is which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently?
1: I would have to say, I go to MoMA quite often, and that's not to suggest that it's my favorite place, but there's a lot of stuff to see there so i do I do go to MoMA quite often, but you know what if I was to be honest I'd go to the Guggenheim probably more, but that may also be because i'm on the board yeah. <laughs> of the of the institution <laughs> so you know i'm I'm at the Guggenheim quite a bit, and I love. What and how solo exhibitions unfold in that space. That when you go to the Guggenheim, you're going to just see this one show. Not that the the, the ancillary galleries are are also often programmed um, quite brilliantly, but you know that there's this singular experience and you know how you're going to walk around it. You know, everyone has their strategy, right? Mine is top to bottom. Some people may go bottom to top. I don't know anybody who starts in the middle. I think you'd have to be a serial killer. I'm not exactly sure how one would approach that. But the fact that you do have one strategy, right? You either go one way or you go the other way. I just love that it unfolds that way, that it's so narrative. You know, going to the game and I was like watching a
0: film. It's also a sense-sharpening thing, isn't it, right? Because you, because you have to make that decision. You don't just walk into the room. And it makes me think a little bit about a, a point that you made about how you, in a way, how you uh, refer to your own subjects in the sense that you, you feel like you're witnessing as opposed to just looking. And I think that's an interesting thing about looking at art too, right? So ha, sort of bearing witness to something is somehow more active than just standing in front of it and looking.
1: I've always described it that way, bearing witness or being a witness. I just like the idea that the expectation for witnesses is higher than it is for, for someone who we would um, imagine is looking. Because witnesses are expected to recall. We're supposed to be able to go to a witness and say, what is it that you saw? And, and, and describe it to us. So I, I, I really like to think of myself as a, as a witness when I, when I go see an exhibition, uh, in any space, uh, for that matter. And it's how I often talk to my son when we, when we go see exhibitions. Now, he's eight, and he uh, still struggles to have the patience to, to be a witness, but I make him consciously bear witness. I say, what did you see? What was it And what did it make you feel? I I think one of the things that we do that is potentially dangerous and maybe not the best strategy for how we look at and then describe and talk about art is we have really planted in young folks in particular, and this usually happens in schools, we've planted this expectation that everything that you see has some sort of meaning that you're not seeing. You know, that that there's always some sort of iconography or some sort of metaphor that the artist has some sort of hidden agenda that you have to somehow discover or imagine that you're not privy to. And I think that's dangerous because it makes people feel like they don't understand what it is they're looking at. And a lot of times they do. You have the sophistication. You don't need a tremendous amount of antecedent knowledge to come to an art object, bear witness, explore it, and then say what it is that that object is and does and how it performs in the world and feel confidence in, in that description. And I think that people need to feel that kind of agency. All of us need to feel more of that agency. When we, when we uh, look at and, and discuss art objects rather than saying, oh, there's something here that's underneath the surface that's not being, that I'm not being given access to that is the real meaning behind how this object or this concept or, or, or however you describe what it is we're looking at functions. And it's unfair and I think it's quite silly.
0: That's really fascinating I, I noticed that you have said in the past that you, you you want to have a direct communication with your audience that 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 and so those the, the arts of disguise or or the arts of overly relying on metaphor don't appeal to you that they, you, you want that and it, it, in a way, it's exactly what you said about Rakim and Franz Klein and others. You want that direct route of communication to the audience
1: i do I, I like to give people the tools. I like to give people the tools to understand and explore. I, I've had some, some folks describe my project as opaque, and I'm so confused by that sometimes. I'm like, I gave you all of the tools. I often l- literally put my reference point in the form of a literary tool on the shelf of the thing that you're looking at, right? Like, Here's The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, the book by Harold Cruz. Here is Shea Butter. Here is Black Soap. Here is, um, you know, these really direct references. And yes, there are things, you know, in between the cracks that unfold when, when you have access to me or things written about me are interviews, etc., where there are signifiers that I'm employing and considering in, in really specific ways. But at the same time, all of the things are there. And I'm really open to and willing to allow uh, the audience to engage with those materials collectively and the relationship that's built between them and the audience in whichever way they see fit and have a real comfort level
0: with those, those interpretations. Um, let's talk about literature then. First of all, I mean, we'll come back to uh, the, the role of b- actual books in your work but first of all, which books and writers do you return to?
1: Toni Morrison is a genius in a way that I struggle to even feel like I should try to discuss. I just find her work and her project to be one that's so expansive, both in her fiction writing as well as her non-fiction work. Her voice... Her sensibility, her sophistication is unparalleled to me in ways that I just, I am in awe of. Thinking about a younger writer, voice, uh, Paul Beatty, uh, whose book, The Sellout, won the Booker Prize a few years ago. That's right. Has been an enormous influence on me, starting with his book, White Boy Shuffle, in the uh, early 2000s. And the humor that Lives in in his project and the way that he's able to deconstruct and, and imagine a world and and push a world around and bully it and use history but use contemporary vernacular to explore is uh, he's he's a writer that I think is is enormously important to me. You know Faulkner, Hemingway. I look. I have. A investment in things that people would consider to be uh, part of 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 a canon that is problematic, but I still am interested in it. I'm still interested in it and and I think that we need to be transforming it, exploring it and and, and hybridizing it and, and 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 placing new names in it. but I'm not throwing it out. There are still figures in it that I think, although we're rejiggering it. That that I have a real investment in, and who I have a real interest in. I mean, Hemingway in particular, the economy of language, um, the way that stories unfold there, where you're like, what's happening here? I know exactly what's happening. He told me with like just so few words. And, and uh, so, you know, he's someone who's incredibly interesting. On the nonfiction side, you know, W.B. Du Bois uh, in particular, a, a book called The Souls of Black Folks it has been hugely important to me. Uh, a reference that I made earlier, Harold Cruz's book, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, was the scariest title that I had ever seen. It lived on my mother's bookshelf. And I remember seeing it around age eight or nine and thinking to myself, holy cow, I hope I'm not obligated to understand what's happening in there. And, and uh, you know, later on, I find myself in a position where I felt like I was, and 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 I was enthusiastic about it. Amiri Baraka, his poetry, uh, in particular, a book "The Dead Lecturer," uh, which is incredibly influential for me. Uh, also, his work as a playwright, and and I would uh, I would say "Dutchman," uh, a really important play for me, something that I've actually used uh, and and directed myself. So, you know, again. There's like a laundry list um, of folks whose work is inspiring me. I I mean I haven't even said Richard Wright, and I have right. spent a year of my life making a film uh, based on his book Native Son. So uh, I'm able to to create a list that doesn't even include something to which I I uh, I spent a year of my life exploring. So
0: let's talk about the about the actual physical objects the books that feature in your work and I wonder what 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 do you see their role as being because I think obviously when you see Harold Cruz's book on the shelf of one of your steel cube works the temptation obviously is to reach out and take it off the shelf and read it so I wondered if what 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 you're in in a way what you're calling for the audience response to be in that circumstance.
1: I hope that there are several different opportunities for the audience when they come across something like that. For those who are more familiar with those signifiers or those tools, I like the idea that they, upon looking at it in the context of the, the sculptural object to which it it, it it lays, can then kind of begin to conjure some of the, the ideas and the concerns that live within the text and then marry them quite quickly to what's happening and unfolding in the sculptural narrative. So I, I like the, how, that, how that can function. I like that people can potentially, who are less familiar with some of the signifiers or some of the reference points, can say, okay, this is a thing to explore later that will help me unpack what it is I'm looking at. And so that is another kind of opportunity in a way where you're like, okay, potentially I have some homework here if I want it, right? If I want to continue to unpack this or explore what and how the artists imagine this object to be able to, to communicate, I have this opportunity, right? So I have this agency, I have this reference point. I also love them as mark making tools. I think that there's just something fascinating about the book. I grew up with with my mother having a pretty extensive library in the basement. Looking at it, just I remember just looking at the library, you know. And I think it's something that a lot of us do. I go to bookstores. I love that the books are are delivery systems, but I also just love the objectness of them. I often use them in 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 multiplicity. Like I will include. 10 copies to a hundred copies on some works of the same book. And, and in that sense, it's an opportunity to say, no, I didn't find this. I'm not interested in, in uh, the found object. I'm interested in the searched for object. So, so it really performs the role of, of of creating intentionality where it's like, here's this book a hundred times. I, I meant for this book to be here. Like this isn't a coincidence, this is uh, this is is incredibly intentional, and when they are used in multiplicity, uh, they become these these kind of lines. It becomes part of my mark making strategy. Like, how do you create a line? I sometimes use them for the purpose of the color that they bring. There's a sharp red in one of the copies of. Harold Cruz's The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, that's just so urgent, the urgency of this red. And so I use that red, and that red then performs a role on, on the sculpture, and it becomes an aesthetic tool. So they they uh, are capable of, of, of serving many roles on a work, and, and I am just kind of indebted to them as well
0: for what they delivered to me. In a way... It's the way that you talk about it is, is that the presence of a book in the work is just as direct a symbol of a kind of autobiographical response to the world or, a, or subjective response to the world as when you've got an oil stick in your hand and you're drawing or you've got a spray can and you're spraying directly onto the surface. You know, you don't see a hierarchy of mark or a hierarchy of language in the work. It's, it's all the same stuff, but just using different kind of physical structures, if, if you like.
1: Yeah, I I hadn't thought about the fact that I don't see a hierarchy there, but I don't. It's nice of you to point that out. It's actually something for me to take away from this conversation is I don't see a hierarchy. And again, I think that that comes uh, back to my investment in both the poetry of mark making and an interest in aesthetics and then uh, a, a, a real investment in critical and conceptual practice, which... Uh, for me, I'm like, okay, the book made the mark, my hand made the mark, it's the, the mark was made, and that's where my investment uh, lives.
0: We've talked a bit about music already, but tell me, which music or other audio do you have playing while you're in the studio?
1: I play a lot of different stuff when I'm in the studio. I've always had a real interest in improvisation and avant-garde jazz. So you'll hear a lot of Cecil Taylor in my studio. You'll hear a lot of Ornette Coleman. You'll hear a lot of uh, Art Ensemble Chicago, some stuff that people would imagine as noise, some music that people may even be quite frustrated by. So uh, I don't have a big team that works with me, but when we do have someone new come in, they have to be indoctrinated into uh, the fact that I play some things that can be tough on the ears for certain people if it's not something to which they're accustomed. I also have a real, like I love so much different music i there's a lot of parliament funkadelic that that i that i listen to at more celebratory moments oftentimes when i'm when i'm finished with something i'll put on parliament funkadelic and and i like it as as um witnessing music as as, as music that i can like look at the work around
0: as if you're inviting george clinton into the studio to come and observe it with you
1: that would be like the best thing that could ever happen. George Clinton actually is a painter in his own right. And I was talking with someone recently who is interested in trying to get George's work out there. I I don't know much about his works. I can't speak to it, but yeah, I I would love to just get a a crit from, from George. He's, he's amazing. I'm in Bootsy.
0: I wanted to ask you about Sun Ra and Afrofuturism. Do you see your work within that trajectory of Afrofuturism? Because it's something which seems ever more prevalent now and, and somehow supremely relevant at this moment. Can you say something about, about your relationship with Afrofuturism?
1: You know, when I was a little bit younger of an artist, I, I really saw, I found Afrofuturism to be a fantastic space to explore. I still think it's really interesting I, I'm not sure right now in my project I have the kind of investment in Afrofuturist narratives that I once had. And I'm not suggesting that that's a young man's, or a young artist's position to explore. But it's definitely a space that I continue to be interested in. It's definitely music that I continue to be interested in. I listen to Sun Ra quite often. And I love the message. And I love other aspects of the message more now than I thought I liked when when I was a little bit younger. Uh, The escapist aspects of the work are some of the things that continue to, to be really present in my work. The fact that Sun Ra believed himself to actually be from Mars, right? And that he had become for whatever reason, so disillusioned by the world that we inhabit here and the limitations that he created a parallel universe for for himself. So within or outside of the Afrofuturist narrative, that conceptually is fascinating to me. More recently, there's been a lot of kind of black absurdity that's that's really interesting. That I think speaks to some Afrofuturist spaces. There's there's uh, something that some folks have been calling kind of Afro pessimism, which I think Tanahasi Coates and some other kind of contemporary writers and thinkers probably live in that space, which is like imagining that we are dealing with a really really complicated and almost immovable, oppressive state that we need to just recognize its ferocity and its failures and not imagine that we can escape it or imagine that there's some space outside of it that we need to explore, that we need to just stay home in it and continue to point out its failures. And I think that that's a really interesting space and something that I'm kind of interested in as well. So it's in my tool belt, I guess I would say, but it's not the guiding light that maybe it was for me at a different stage.
0: To pick up on something you were just asking there, I'm going to ask you a question about paint color now. And actually, you know, when we came up with this question, in a way, it's quite an innocent question about a sort of what's your go to paint color. But I know that you started making paintings with this color called anxious red. and, and, And that's not a flippant thing at all is it that's directly tapping into this very concerning troubling moment that we're in now can you explain more about your use of that color
1: yeah that color is something that i that i built in collaboration with a paint company called rf paints which is upstate new york and i was using some different oil set colors that they had already made one was called turkey uh turkey red another was called uh, Quinacridone red and cadmium's and I, you know, I said, "Oh, well, these are great, but there was something that I, I wanted to make myself, just to get into the specifics of how transparent it is and how viscous it is." So the conversation around paint is bigger than the color of a paint. It's around like how does the paint perform? Like how does it function as a material? And so I started collaborating with them to to, to create both a color and a, a, a material. Uh, which becomes anxious red, and it is incredibly descriptive for me of the time that that we are living in, you know, and, and some of the obstacles and some of the things that are concerning us, including the COVID crisis, including the more recent reckoning in social justice and and the interrogation of institutions and the you know upcoming election i mean there are so many different things that are happening that i think we we are so conscious of and so anxious about and this idea of anxiety which has been present in the work for several years it's interesting to uh, to see that my project was able to pivot to consume this time the antecedent that i that i keep using is the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres which we all know kind of is born of of kind of a, a conversation around the AIDS crisis and interrogation of the AIDS crisis, but is 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 the kind of work that is able to kind of embrace any kind of critical moment and interrogate and explore and, and 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 give catharsis to different kinds of critical moments. I happen to have a body of work that I thought was that nimble and was, that, was, was not equally capable of pivoting, but, but capable of pivoting. And so in order to allow that work to pivot, I, I needed to make a small change, and that change in this particular body of work, which was the Anxious Men, was to give it a color uh, uh, that, that spoke to the urgency that I thought we were all facing and, and continue to be facing, to be honest and that that was read.
0: It's interesting that the when that work began, it was 2015. And it was you were anxious then about that the, there had been the the first stage, if you like, of the Black Lives Matter movement, you were facing an election in the US where you it began to look pretty scary, and it turned out to be even scarier. And it's interesting that you know, you're, you, the work is in a way that it's, it's snowballed into this whole new territory and, and this body of work called broken men that has run alongside it. And it, it seems to me that it's so interesting that it's men, because on the one hand, it began with self what you describe as self-portraits, the anxious men, and then the anxious audiences, these groups of men. And I wanted you to talk about masculinity and how much you see masculinity as a sort of inherent part of the crisis that you're relating to. <laughs>
1: No, I think masculinity uh, is often quite toxic. And for a lot of the world, it's been incredibly dangerous, uh, the male ego and masculinity. The Anxious Men, in an interesting way, came from much more of a micro-location than I think most people are aware. I had gotten sober in 2014. And I started, and I was a heavy drinker, uh, I started making that work in 2015 in some ways as a response to living in a world that I didn't know how to live in without drugs and alcohol and that was 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 paralleled by the killing of Mike Brown and and the and Donald Trump running for 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 president and refugee crisis globally. I mean, there were just so many things unfolding, and I felt in some ways like my eyes had just opened. Like I, I had just become even more conscious. Prior to to that time, a lot of my work is dealing with historical narratives and the autobiographic, you know? Like, what's my story? How does it fit into these historical narratives? How do we explore these spaces? I I was making a project that was quite timeless, in a sense, and then the, the, the work upon me becoming sober starts to look at the world that we were living in at the time. And it was really kind of a shock. Like there was no more buffer. You know? I had no escape uh, uh, tool. I didn't have the, 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 the fluid that I had used to perform my escape and so the work starts showing a different urgency in speaking to the time in a way that maybe it hadn't specifically so much prior and that's just i'm just being honest as to how that unfolded for me and and that anxiety and and that need to express it and be honest about it and to 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 be vulnerable and you know as that as that as that speaks to Masculinity, I think masculinity is and should be characterized with vulnerability as part of what it should do. I think there's the the, the question is, how does masculinity function? And then how does toxic masculinity function? Toxic masculinity does not have vulnerability in it. Masculinity can have vulnerability. And I see it that way. And I think that it has the agency and the responsibility to be vulnerable. So when I think about the word masculinity, I think about what it should be and how we should be interpreting it, as opposed to toxic masculinity, which I think is something that we need to make sure that we're keeping in check. But we've obviously had a lot of trouble with that in the last couple thousand years.
0: Is there a discipline in your studio life that's a kind of essential ritual?
1: The only real essential ritual in my studio life is showing up. I show up at my studio. I'm a, I'm a, uh, a studio rat, as someone would, would, would call it. I, I like to be there. I like the, to be in the space. I like the material. Uh, I like the opportunity. I just show up. I show up to work. Whether that means I actually work every time I'm in my studio, that's a different question. But I'm there I'm there and, and I'm willing and I'm enthusiastic and, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. So, so yeah, just, just being present is, is, is the only ritual I have.
0: This is proving to be a really difficult question for all our guests. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be?
1: This is a very, very difficult question for me. And I think I've tried to answer this for myself before, and just each time I feel more and more disappointed (laughs) by my answer. So I'm going to try not to repeat what some of my former answers have been. I love my wife's work, Sherry Josepian. I love living with it. I love what she does. I love her honesty. I love her approach. I I don't know how to answer this.
0: I think that's a good answer, isn't it?
1: And I think that's really honest, I have to say. Because I know what it takes for her to make it. And I know the demons that she fights. And I know the reward that she gets. And... I know the sacrifice that it takes to see her work come to fruition and the time. And I love it for that. I don't know how anything else gets made, really, for the most part, in other artists' projects, but I know how her project uh, 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 comes to life and I know how hard she works and I love being in the presence of it. So I'd say save my wife, Sherry like. That's what I'd want to live with. And that's what I do live with. So I'm, I'm really grateful. That's great. Lastly, what's art for? Art gives us a chance to answer and explore questions that we ask ourselves that have no other outlet or we have no other way to explore our answer. Art allows us to tell stories without feeling self-conscious. Art gives us the ability to consume things and explore content and invest in ideas in ways that language doesn't facilitate. Art is absolutely capable of changing the world, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. Art is a historian, art is a poet, Art is the work. It's our lives. It's who we are. And if it weren't, then we wouldn't do it.
0: Amen to all that. Thank you, Rashid, for joining us on the podcast. Happy to be here. Great questions. This was a lot of fun. An exhibition of new work by Rashid Johnson is at Hauser & Worth in London from the 6th of October to the 23rd of December. And that's it for this episode, and indeed for this series. Please subscribe to A Brush With, and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. A new series of our other podcast at The Art Newspaper, The Week in Art, begins next week, and you can find the back catalogue of that podcast wherever you get your podcasts, more than 100 episodes looking at the art world in depth from museums to heritage and the market, many of them featuring interviews with artists from Peter Doig and Anselm Kiefer to Tracy Emin. Do subscribe to The Week in Art to be notified about our new episodes. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Julia Mihouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jellar. Huge thanks to Rashid Johnson. We hope there'll be more episodes of A Brush With very soon. In the meantime, we'll see you on the next episode of The Week in Art. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Cork Street Galleries. To find out more about the original home of the art world, go to corkstreetgalleries.com.